if you follow Jesus for any length of time at all, if that's been your history, your pattern, you'll discover, and I'm sure you have discovered, that God will again and again bring crises into your life. That's what he does. It might be the loss of a job. It might be relational conflict with a long-time friend or family member. It might be deep challenges in your marriage. It might be cancer or illness or some other kind of serious health concern. But the reality is that God will do these kinds of things. He will and he does. What is God up to when he does this? What is he up to when he brings crisis into our lives? Why does he do it? David knew what it meant to be suddenly thrust into a crisis by God. You see, his life, it had appeared, was on an understandable trajectory. He had been secretly anointed as a young man by Saul to one day become the new king of Israel. And then, as training for that throne, he was called for a time into service to Saul, the wicked king that David knew he would one day replace. Now, this wasn't an easy path that God had called him to, but, but at least in some way it made sense. It was a, a way of learning humility and patience and faith and obedience, preparing him to be a good king, a faithful king for God's people when he would eventually be given that responsibility. So David served Saul. He served him. First, he served him with his lyre, soothing Saul's mood when he was afflicted by an evil spirit. Then he served Saul on the battlefield, fighting Goliath in his place, winning the victory for Israel. Then David served Saul by commanding his armies in the field and marrying his daughter and entering into a covenant with his son, Jonathan. Now, none of this was easy. Sometimes Saul would have fits of rage or accuse David of misbehaving or set seemingly impossible tasks for David to perform. But on some level, at least, it made sense. Saul was a wicked king, and David was learning to be a good king by humbly and obediently serving him. And so David continued on this path for some years. But then everything changed. Saul turned against David one day in a decisive way and began to conspire to murder him. David, warned by Jonathan of this plot, had to leave behind his wife, and his home, and his role in the king's service to save his life. And that's how David found himself, as we heard in our first Old Testament reading this morning, in the clutches of Achish, the king of the Philistines. That's how it all came about. Fleeing Saul, David had gone to the Philistines, hoping that they would offer him safe refuge given their hatred of Saul. And indeed, years later, in David's wanderings, he did actually find safe harbor in Gath, in the land of the Philistines. But this time, Achish did not respond as David had hoped. His life, he found, was in just as much danger because of the hands of the Philistines as it had been in the hands of Saul. And so David, in this moment of what can only be described as Holy Spirit-inspired craftiness, begins to act like an insane person like a madman. He, he scratches at the walls of the city gate. 
with his bare hands, tearing his nails, bloodying his fingers. He intentionally begins to spew saliva out of his mouth until it drenches his beard and begins to roll down his chest. Friends, think about this. Think about what that must have been like. This must have been the lowest point in David's life thus far. He's lost his wife, his home, his job. As far as he can tell, his future. He is literally a man without a country. And now he's in a moment of utter public humiliation, acting like an insane person. Not just figuratively, but literally acting like an insane person. Think of the internal desperation. I mean, how crazy do you have to be to try to get out of the situation in this way? He was no longer a successful warrior, a favored son-in-law of the king. He was just a man without a country, with torn nails and bloody fingers and spittle running down his beard, hoping somehow this plan would work. But the important thing to see is that God did this to David. God did it. God introduced this crisis into David's life. God brought him intentionally to this point of humiliation and loss and desperation. And so Psalm 56, a psalm written in response to this particular experience, is in many ways David working out his own answer by the inspiration of the Spirit to this question. What is God up to? Why has God done this? Why has he brought this crisis into my life? Listen now to God's word from Psalm 56, which is printed on the back of your order of worship. If you'd like to listen or read along, rather, as you listen. Psalm 56. To the choir master, according to the dove on far off terebinths, a mictum of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in Yahweh, whose word I praise, in God I trust, 
I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from, fa- from falling. That I may walk before God in the light of life. Thus far the reading of God's word. It is absolutely true. And it is given to you because your father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us now to hear this portion of your word and to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it, that we may embrace and ever hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. As I've said, in many ways, Psalm 56 is David working through the crisis in his life that God has brought about. His experience of extreme desperation and vulnerability and trying to understand what God is doing, what he is up to in all these things. And I love in that context how David begins Psalm 56. Be gracious to me, O God, he says. Be gracious to me. I mean, mean, that sums it up right there, doesn't it? God's graciousness, God's kindness, God's mercy, friends, that is what we need above all things in our lives, particularly in times of crisis and desperation. But actually, every day, every moment, what we need is the kindness of God, the undeserved grace and mercy that he gives. We need, above all things, friends, the kindness of God. And that's where David begins. In the rest of verses 1 and 2, David explains why in this moment he needs God's graciousness. It's because Saul has risen against him and now Achish, the king of the Philistines, has joined in. My enemies trample on me all day long, David says. And he's not wrong. Then in verses 3 and 4, we see David working out in his own words, the first reason that God, he believes, has brought this crisis into his life. He says that God has done it as a means by which David would move from a place of fear to a place of confidence. That he would move from a place of fear to a place of confidence. Let me show you what I mean by that. In verse 3, David says, speaking to God, addressing God, he says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. You see, interestingly, David assumes that there will be times in his life when he's afraid, when he's terrified. Certainly, he was terrified in that moment in the court of the king of Gath, pretending to be an insane person to save his life. And the same is true for us, beloved. You see, fear is not something we're immune from. There's so much in this world to be afraid of. Death and sickness and the plans of evil men, the inherent vulnerability of our lives and the lives of those whom we love. But friends, what if, what if those experiences of fear are actually opportunities that God has given you to place your trust in him in a new 
and deeper way. You see, there's nothing like a real experience of fear, of terror, of confusion, of loss, to reveal what it is that we actually trust in to deliver us. When I am afraid, David says, I put my trust in you. That's what he says to God. You can almost imagine him in that moment of exterior madness, having that interior prayer, saying to God, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. And David invites us, friends, to pray that prayer with him. Beloved, this is a prayer that is short enough to easily teach our children. What if we taught our children in their moments of real fear and terror? Not to try to just sort of control or manage that fear, not to dismiss it, but to use it as a moment to place themselves into God's hands. To say to him, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. To actually pray that sentence to God. You see, in verse 4, David shows us that what will take place over time as we do this, as we place our trust in God when we are afraid, is this. Over time, by the work of the Spirit, God promises to move us from a place of fear to a place of confidence. Notice the the movement between verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, David says, When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. And then he says in verse 4, Who is the you? In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, and then I shall not be afraid, he says. What can flesh do to me? In verse 3, David says, when I am afraid. Now in verse 4, as he learns to place his trust in God in the midst of his fear, he says, I shall not be afraid. And why? Because he trusts in God. He knows that God is with him. And that if God is with him, what can flesh, what can any created thing actually do to him in any fundamental way? It's the same as what Jesus said in our gospel reading this morning about whom it is we should fear and be afraid of. Beloved, I know that some of you are plagued by fear. Fear and anxiety are like a cloud. These are patterns that are deeply ingrained and familiar in your life. You've lived with those things for so long that they just seem normal. right? Fear and anxiety just seem like the normal way to interact with the world. I know that for some of you, your mind is consumed at times with compulsive thoughts, intrusive thoughts. At times, your body seems ready to shut down because of that fear and anxiety. But, beloved, what I want you to see is that God desires to move you from that place. From that place of overwhelming fear to a place of profound confidence in Him. To a place where you say, in the midst of whatever situation it is that seems fearful and overwhelming, that you say, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? What can flesh do to me? 
I shall not be afraid. And the means by which God's Spirit will move us, will move you from a place of fear to a place of confidence is by learning to pray even the words of this psalm. To say directly to God again and again, every time that we are afraid or overwhelmed or anxious, when I am afraid, what do I do? I put my trust in you. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. What if experiences of fear are opportunities to commune with God? What if that's what they are? I mean, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. That's a, a prayer you can, you can pray to God in the middle of the night when you wake up with your mind racing. That's a prayer that we can pray before we have to have a difficult conversation that we'd rather avoid. That's a prayer we can pray when we look at our bank account or our housing situation or our declining physical health and we can't figure out how it's all going to work out. We can say this prayer, acknowledging our fear, but also placing our trust in God. When I am afraid, we can say to God, I put my trust in you. I encourage you, friends, to take that prayer on your lips. In verses 5 to 7, David lays out before God the wickedness and evil of his enemies. He asks him to judge, it's interesting, not only them, but to judge everyone. He needs the judgment of God to come upon all. He says, in wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. Then in verse 8, David illuminates a second reason why God brings crisis into our lives. We might summarize this reason in this way. In verse 8, David shows us that God brings crisis into our lives that he might know us even in our tears. Or maybe especially, we might say, in our tears. Listen to what David writes in verse 8. This is a remarkable verse, I think, that, that shows us what it means for God to actually know us, to see us, and for us to experience intimacy with him even in the midst of our grief and our sorrow, which are some of the most vulnerable moments of our lives. David says to God, he says, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? You've kept count of my tossings, David says. I mean, think of what that means. You see, beloved, David is saying that in every experience of anxiety and fear and grief, even in your most private and intimate experiences of those things, God has seen you. He has seen you in your tossings and turnings, literally perhaps in your bed or figuratively in your heart and your soul. He has recorded those moments in his memory. He has kept count. They are not lost to him. God has kept count of your tossings, of your moments of overwhelming emotion. God remembers them. He is with you and he knows you even, beloved, in those places, in the most private parts of your heart. And then David says these remarkable words to God. He says, put my tears in your bottle. 
you put in a bottle, especially if you're in an arid land? Put things that are precious. Put water in a bottle. You don't spill it. You treasure it up. You guard it. You see, beloved, what David is asking of God here is that God would treasure the very tears that he has shed like water in a dry land. That's how God would treat his tears. That he would treasure them up. That God would not lose them. That God would gather them all in a bottle and keep them safe. And beloved, you must know that this is exactly what God does with your tears. Friends, this is the way that the living God knows you. By his spirit, you cannot flee from his presence. As Psalm 139 says, he is always with you. Indeed, by his son, he has united himself to you. And so all the tears that you have shed of all of your life are gathered up by him. Because they are precious to him. Because your life, the details of your life, is precious to him. He knows that the tears you have shed reveal in many ways the innermost places of your heart. And your God knows you in those places. He sees you in your most intimate moments. None of your fears or your, your sorrows or griefs are lost to him. And beloved, remember he makes you this promise as well. He promises that those tears will not last forever. You see, in this really profoundly beautiful way, God treasures up our tears because one day he will wipe them away. Has he not said, our Lord Jesus, that on the last day God will wipe away every tear from the eyes of his people and death shall be no more Jesus has said, and neither there shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for former things have passed away. Beloved, he has made us this promise, and he will keep it. Your tears will not last forever. So one reason God brings crisis into our lives is to, is to give us opportunities to trust him in a new way, to move from fear to new confidence. And we've also said that God brings crisis into our lives that we might be known by him in deeper and deeper ways, even in our sorrow, in our tears. And now in verses 12 and 13, David shows us a final reason for which God brings crisis into our lives so that we might learn to thank him. Verses 12 and 13, he says, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. You see, beloved, at least one of the reasons that God brings crisis into your lives is to teach you what it means to give him thanks. And this is the way it has always been, right? God's people experience a kind of shaking, a kind of upturning, a kind of suffering, a time of crisis. And then after deliverance, 
They render thanks to him. Think of Noah and his family offering sacrifice after the floodwaters shook the earth and then receded. Think of Moses and Miriam leading Israel in praise after the defeat of Egypt and 400 years of slavery under Pharaoh at the Red Sea. Think of the exiles returning from, Jer- from Babylon to Jerusalem with their mouths full of gratitude. This did not dynamic that we see here in this psalm, which begins with David's request for God to be gracious to him in the midst of his trouble, and then detailing all of that trouble before God, and then ending with David offering God thanksgiving for his deliverance. This is the constant pattern of the Christian life. Always. It happens in big ways, right? In response to huge crises in our corporate or in our individual lives, but it happens in small ways too. Friends, every Lord's Day is an opportunity to enter into this pattern of thanksgiving that David models for us here and that God has provided for us. Because every Lord's Day is an opportunity to reflect back on the week before, to remember God's faithfulness and to render him thanksgiving for all that he has done, for all the ways he has showed up, for all the ways that he continues to be gracious and merciful to us. Indeed, this is one of the fundamental reasons why assembling with the saints each Lord's Day is such an essential part of the Christian life. It's not just because we need the means of grace, though we do, of course. We need word, sacrament, and prayer to bind us to Jesus, to give us Jesus, and to keep us steadfast in our faith. It's not only because of the encouragement that we offer and receive from other members of the body. We also, friends, come to the Lord's Day worship because we owe God something. We owe him something. We owe him our thanksgiving, our gratitude for his faithfulness each day, each week. And we offer that to him every Lord's Day when we gather to worship him together. As David puts it, he says, I must perform my vows to you, right? I must do it. I will render thank offerings to you, he says to God. Friends, this movement that we see in this psalm from crisis to deliverance, from petition to thanksgiving, this is the fundamental movement of the Christian life. It happens in huge ways. It happens in small ways. It happens in ways where we can look back and say, you know, that year was a year of crisis and deliverance. But it happens every day as well. Every day we can look back and say, there was a crisis. There was deliverance. It happens again and again and again because for those who are beloved of God, here's the deal. Every crisis is like a kind of death that is followed by resurrection. Death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. It is true for the Lord Jesus, and it is true for all of those who come after him. Death and resurrection. This is the pattern in a hundred different ways in our lives, in symbolic deaths, both small and large, And it is also true in a fundamental way because we will die. 
And that death will be swallowed up by the resurrection that Jesus will bring in the last day for all those whom God loves. God loves. Because God does this, friends. He does it because it is in this way, through crisis and deliverance, through petition and thanksgiving, through death and resurrection, that God binds us to himself and makes us like unto his Son, Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, indeed, we give you thanks this day for your kindness to us. You are gracious, Father. And our fundamental prayer in our lives is that that graciousness would continue. I ask, Father, that you would give us mercy and grace even this morning to further reflect upon your word, to ponder it up, to treasure it in our hearts, to show forth its fruit in our lives. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.